BSD Talk number 173. It's Friday, May 8, 2009. What follows is the first interview I've done so far here at BSD Can. I arrived yesterday, so I wasn't able to make any of the tutorials, but I did have my first day of talks today and looking forward to the ones tomorrow. So far, as usual, been a great event, and I'm looking forward to returning next year. But all right, on to the interview with some of the free BSD Core team members. Today we're here at the first day of BSD CAN. This is after the tutorials in the Dev Summit. And I'm here with a few members of the FreeBSD core team. It's nice to have these interviews at these various conferences so we can get a little update on what you all have been working on, what's new in FreeBSD, and, and what's coming. So if you could, maybe start going around the room and just let us know who's here. I'm Robert Watson. I'm a member of the FreeBSD core team. I have interests in the area of security and high-performance networking. Uh, Brooks Davis, also on core, um, do high performance computing, networking, lots of ports, that sort of thing. Uh, my name is Hiroki Sato, uh, Akuji member, and uh, I'm working on uh, documentation. I'm Philip Babs, I'm the core team secretary, and I cause generalized trouble all over the place. I'm George Neville Neal, I'm also a member of core, and I work on high performance networking and FreeBSD. So here on the first day, uh, you, you came off the Dev Summit. It was at the previous two days. That was Wednesday, yes, Thursday. Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. And I guess before maybe we jump into what was going on at the Dev Summit, which are some of the new features that are coming out, uh, just recently there was another release of FreeBSD 7.2. And maybe if some of you could highlight some of the features maybe that you worked on or the, some of the particular features that are of note that you uh, maybe have worked on or excited about. Right. Well, I think... We will consider 7.2 primarily to be a refinement of the existing and, and pretty successful uh, 7.x line. I think it's actually 7.0 was one of the most stable and mature .0 releases we've done. Uh, 7.2 is a sort of a refinement, um, but there are some exciting new features in there. One of those is support for multiple IP addresses and also IPv6 in our jail uh, sort of semi-virtualization facility, which a lot of web hosts use to serve uh, multiple customers on the same system. Uh, historically, we were restricted to one IP address, which you know, it was great for a long time, and especially with, with virtual hosting, but if you have uh, SSL web servers, which really require their own IP address, uh, then it's very important to have this feature. And I know a lot of people have been looking forward to this release very much just for this change. Also, the IPv6 support in jails is very good for people who are interested in IPv6. Previously, we could only do IPv4 on jails, but together with the multi-IPv4 patch, IPv6 support was thrown in for free. So then we've got Super Pages, which is... Uh an improvement to the memory subsystem, and that gives us the ability to address much larger chunks of memory in a single page. If you've got a working set that can uh, that needs large amounts of memory, then you really want that because you're not going to be spending as much overhead uh, walking page tables. And what's particularly cool about this implementation, I mean, many systems have support for super pages in, in some sense, um, but it's completely transparent to applications. So you don't need to change your applications in order for them to use large page sizes, which means you can get a significant performance improvement uh, without any changes. Uh, in other systems, uh, in order for applications to use super pages, they have to specifically allocate them and manage them themselves. Uh, what's kind of neat about this approach, it, uh, this is an approach devised by uh, Alan Cox at Rice, um, is that uh, the system will automatically identify 
uh, applications that could use super pages and start to use them when it makes sense. Uh, and then if the load goes up on the system or you need to page portions of a page out, uh, then it'll demote them back to regular pages uh, so you don't take some of the overheads associated with super pages uh, when your system is under load. So it's a, it's a pretty easy feature. I think a lot of our, our consumers will be very excited about that. And as with all new releases, there's uh, lots of fixes, and in particular, there's a lot of improvements uh, to device drivers. So one of the things I work on quite a bit is 10 gigabit networking, and the device drivers there are maturing quite quickly, which is great. We now have a vendor who has uh, hired a full-time FreeBSD engineer to work on some 10 gigabit kit, which is really good for us. Right. Uh, we also have a correctness and regressions uh, in the performance of our storage framework. Uh, so users who may have seen some performance issues with 7.1 uh, in terms of storage speed on high-speed arrays will find that they actually uh, they get a performance improvement when they move to 7.2. And so now that people have had some time to, to beat up on the 7 series, overall are you having a sense that this release has been pretty successful and has met the goals? Right, I think so. I mean, I think uh, one of the outcomes of our developer summit was uh, an enormous number of companies who have FreeBSD products based, uh, especially on 6.x, uh, are looking to aggressively move forward to 7. Uh, we talked to several large FreeBSD consumers. They found that the upgrade is actually not nearly as painful as they feared. Uh, the changes have been sort of fairly self-contained. There are a lot of architectural improvements and so on. Um, so I think we can look forward to some of these large application vendors and appliance vendors using 7. Um, we know that the feedback we've had so far is that the S&P scalability improvements in 7, which I think the last time we spoke, we'd gotten 7.0 out the door, but uh, we hadn't gotten a lot of feedback yet from our user community, uh, is that they've seen massive performance improvements. Uh, they've been able to consolidate servers, especially on high-speed multi-core servers. They've been able to move uh, workloads that traditionally required many machines down to one machine, which is which is very exciting. And it's not just good for them in terms of space. Uh, it also means that we're much better in terms of how we consume power uh, to deliver the same kind of services. So we're, we're greener in many senses. All right, so beyond the 7 series, obviously the Dev Summit starts to highlight some of the features you're thinking of bringing into the next release of the next series, either later in the 7 series or the 8 series. So maybe you could go around and let us know whether there are particular features of the next releases that you're working on or that you're particularly excited about. Well, I'd say the, the big thing that everyone's been talking about in terms of the 8 releases, of course, been uh, virtual network stacks. So V-Images, it's called, and that's been maturing pretty well. That's been going into the tree. Uh, people are using that. I believe it was announced at the Dev Summit that that code is actually in the tree, or not, but you're unable to turn it directly on. But the network stack is being virtualized, which will uh, be a big boon to people who wish to run multiple copies of the network stack, and there's a surprisingly large number of those. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest changing features in 8. Um, there's quite a number of networking features that are changing as well as other parts of the system. Right. So one of the really neat things about virtual network stacks is that you know, in FreeBSD 7 we have this jail support and, and all the way from FreeBSD 4, which allows people to run virtual servers in a very lightweight way, much more efficiently uh, than using full machine virtualization uh, like Xen. Um, However, there have been limitations to what you can do inside those jails. And what a virtualized network stack wants to do is give every, every jail its own firewall, give it its own IPSET configuration, its own routing, and it allows the administrators of individual jails to manage their own network stack configuration without affecting the network stack configurations of other virtual images. So if you're running a web services provider, you want to do machine consolidation, uh, this is a really great feature. Yeah, the logical upgrade from the jail framework. Jails used to be more file system, then they gained network support, and now they've got virtual network support. So, so that's one of the big features. Um, a lot of the other things we're working on, especially in the networking area, are things like improvement for support, uh, improvements for supporting high-speed networks. So once you go from 1 gig to 10 gig, 
you find that pretty much everything that uh, wasn't a bottleneck before is a bottleneck now. You wind up having to support multiple queues. You have to. You wind up having to steer traffic through the lower parts of the operating system to get it to efficiently move through the system. And so there's uh, quite a number of changes down in the lower parts of the network code that are going to handle that. Uh, we're also looking at changes to how we deal with uh, network buffering uh, in terms of how we manage the network packets as they move through the system. In, yeah, in, in general, we're, we're making a lot of improvements to just let us take advantage of the increasing core camp. We're, we're stuck with that reality. Um, you know, we're seeing roadmaps for probably the lifetime of easily 64-way six systems and are working in the direction of getting the pieces in place so we can take advantage of that. Right. I mean, I think the, the scalability goals uh, for the 11, for the 7.x lifespan were, you know, in the range of, of 8 to 16 cores. And, you know, we can already get uh, 32 thread and 32 book boxes. Uh, so as we move into 8, we have to be looking a lot more in, in the long term there. And we've got a lot of structural changes uh, in the 8 tree to kind of address that. Uh, we see scheduler improvements. Uh, we see locking and synchronization improvements. Another aspect of going to these heavily multi-core systems, I mentioned a couple times already in this conversation, uh, is the um, consolidation of servers. So one of the features we're also bringing in innate is support for Zen DOM U, uh, which is something I know a lot of FreeBSD consumers have wanted to see for a long time. Uh, so we'll now have a range of virtualization options, you know, from form machine virtualization to uh, virtual server, which will squeeze many more in but offer a bit less isolation. You know, you'll, you'll be able to do one of these, you'll be able to do all of these, even on the same system. And as we saw core counts get up, you'll be able to do things like say, uh, I want to run this jail on these CPUs, I want to run Zen and dedicate these to another virtual machine. Uh, all of this will be pretty much supported out of the box in 8.0. One of the things that uh, uh, above the kernel level, or not in the kernel, that's, I think, going to be extremely important in 8, uh, for those people who have 7 and have been able to use the Dtrace subsystem, Dtrace has just been an amazing uh, tool and a system to be able to understand the performance of your system. If you want to know uh, what's going wrong, if you know, want to know where the system is slow or where things could be improved, Dtrace has just been an amazing tool for us to have, and, and we're very happy to have it. Uh, the last, I think, missing piece of that has been the ability to use Dtrace on user processes, and this takes quite a bit of work. Uh, so the thing that's going to happen in, in the 8.0 timeframe is we will have Dtrace for user processes, and this will then give us pretty much the ability to use all of the things that people have been able to use on Dtrace on other operating systems, and uh, mostly open Solaris. But um, Dtrace in user space is going to be an amazing, amazing tool for application and systems developers people who are not kernel programmers to use to really get the most out of, the, out of their code and out of their systems. Right, and we've been, one of the topics of discussion at the VBC Developer Summit was uh, how can we add more Dtrace instrumentation so people can monitor this and understand kernel behavior. Um, so we'll, we'll hopefully see a continuing a, a blossoming in that space. We have a, a couple of interesting ideas about how to improve Dtrace ourselves and, and contribute back to Dtrace, so we'll, we'll see how that goes. And in parallel, things that are actually already in head that will wind up in 8.0, Another tool for performance analysis and performance tuning and systems analysis is the HWPMC framework, and that's been recently upgraded to support more modern um, Intel processors all the way up through the i7. So we'll have support for the ability to use the hardware performance monitoring counters to look at, for instance, what's becoming very important now, especially as you go to, again, we're going to keep mentioning multi-core, is cache coherency and, and caching issues. So it's not so much how many instructions, it used to be people would look at how many instructions it would take to do something. Now it's not only how many instructions, but 
are you using the cache efficiently or are you stepping on your own toes with your code? And if you're stepping on your own toes and you're not using the processor efficiently. Right. And the more cores you get, the more caching you have, the more cache sharing you have, and the more you're going to need a tool like that to tell you, you know, why is your system not performing in the way that you think it should perform. Right. And as with D-Trace, uh, HWPMC supports user space, so people can use them on their own applications as well as on the panel. Uh, we find there's kind of a, a diversity of users there. We have our high-end server users who are deploying FreeBSD as a platform for offering services, but then we also have all these uh, appliance vendors, you know, router manufacturers and so on, um, who treat the FreeBSD kernel as a starting point uh, for their own you know, kernel-based extensions and products. And both of those audiences will find this extremely helpful. As you're, you're sort of backing up a little bit when you're talking about D-Trace and also you know, features like ZFS, as you're importing or porting features from Solaris or Open Solaris, are the features, in, you know, are you bringing over their documentation into the FreeBSD handbook, or you know, as you're starting to mix and match pieces from the outside, outside of FreeBSD, are you just relying on the external documentation, or are you bringing that formally also into FreeBSD? Uh, uh, we are trying to integrate uh, the necessary parts okay. of the documentation and the uh, external software, but uh, uh, we are not... <laughs> We are still in the beginning stage, so please wait for the external document. The code is almost the same, and the documentation is valid in the external side, so please wait for it at this moment. Yeah, we, have, we have sort of a mix. So like with uh, ZFS, uh, we have some of the Solaris man pages are part of, part of the installation, uh, but pretty much anything you can do on, on the Solaris on, on, on Solaris, you can do it on FreeBSD, so you can use the same uh, documentation and, and see what you can do. Not everything is the same, but uh, if you're using, uh, if you look at Solaris examples of the same vintage uh, as the code we've brought in, then typically you can do whatever it could do. Dtrace lags that somewhat to some extent uh, because we do not have all of the same providers that Solaris did, and in particular, the, a lot of the low-level providers, function boundary tracing be the one that most people think of, which shows you all the functions as they execute. Um, that's all there, but um, many of the providers they created, a provider in Dtrace is the subsystem in the Dtrace system that can talk to, for instance, your lock manager. So we have someone now who's done uh, a new version of a lock manager provider because our locks are different from Solaris locks. You have to, you have to create a new provider. And so Stacy Son has created this lock manager provider. That'll go into 8. Um, but... If you were to look at uh, the full Solaris D-Trace manual, which I've done because I'm working on some of the D-Trace stuff, you wind up going through and enumerating the things that we support and enumerating the things that we don't. Um, so the generic documentation is there, but specific documentation for subsystems we don't support, that wouldn't be there. And so it's an ongoing process as we bring in and, and have providers that look like what's in other bits of D-Trace, then you'll find more documentation. I would say the D-Trace documentation is... The internal stuff is almost all written from scratch. Right. So we do have a handbook chapter, for example, on using <coughs> trace. We have reference material on our wiki. Um, but I think I would characterize this as a, as a work in progress. Yeah. As, as users of FreeBSD know, we take a great deal of pride in our, our documentation. And uh, so I think we'll see the documentation catch up with these uh, yeah. very exciting new features. Yes. Uh, there are a couple other things coming in. Uh, i highlight quickly. Uh, one of them is we hope very much to have the Mac framework in the generic kernel. Uh, historically... Uh, the security extensibility framework has been an option for sites that were interested in compiling it in, uh, but we're seeing more and more interest in providing sandboxing out of the box, and so we've been working to optimize the framework so it can ship out of the box in, in FreeBSD 8, and that's not yet in our development uh, trees turned on by default because we've been doing performance work, 
Uh, but with any luck, in the next month, that will happen as well. And while we've been focusing, at least in this little interview here, around scalability, up or out, however you want to describe it, one of the things that's in the computer world today is actually things getting smaller in the form of netbooks. And that's a popular field for end users, and I didn't know whether there were any features around power management, suspend, resume, and other kinds of things that, that make FreeBSD a, a good fit for this new sort of popular type of computer. Well, power, power management has historically been a bit of a weak point for us, though actually a recent feature addition was, uh, at least in 8, um, we have uh, uh, power management support for AMD64, and uh, I've, I've found that on, on at least some hardware I've been IBM X61 uh, laptop, and it, it will suspend um, and mostly resume. Um, <laughs> <laughs> much better than it's been for many years. Yeah. Um, I think we're seeing, you know, it's, it's interesting. So networks are kind of an interesting middle ground between, you know, sort of high performance, high performance computing and the embedded world. And we've been aggressively moving into the embedded space. And a lot of the, the side effects of that have improved our support for things like networks, the ability to run in smaller configurations, uh, you know, gradually improving our power management support and so on, um, the need to support flash a bit better, the need to deal with wireless devices. Uh, we run on a number of the networks without much problem at this point. Uh, right. I know that people have been very excited around uh, products like the EBC. Um, and I think that um, there's actually a couple of people on the project now who are heavily working on power management, so I suspect that in the eight time frame you'll see some significant improvements in that as as we're able to exploit those. The problem with that, the problem with power management has been similar to the problem with certain device drivers, which is getting the actual documentation on what happens when you twiddle the correct bits. Uh, if you're not a very large software vendor, sometimes you can't always get that. And uh, as you get down to the smaller, these smaller netbooks, they're using cheaper and cheaper components, uh, which is how they keep their price point, and they're harder and harder to get uh, information on that. But I think you'll see a lot of improvement for the the power management there. I think uh, Robert makes a good point about embedded. I think that's something we talked about a couple of years ago uh, as first starting to, you know, really wanting to get into that space. And I think we've made some significant progress there, even in 7, but definitely in 8, you're going to see support for more architectures in what we would consider closer to a tier 1, uh, where things will, you know, will really work on a non x86 non-AMD64 architecture. Right, so for example, uh, we now have support for MIP64 and the base tree as part of FreeBSD8, and we're actually finding vendors coming out of the woodwork saying, you know, we've been using MIPS, uh, FreeBSD on MIPS for a long time, how can we uh, how can we integrate back with yours and, and try to provide a more uniform environment? Uh, another feature we have, which both helps desktop users, uh, you know, netbook users and embedded, uh, is we have a new USB stack in FreeBSD8, which is something that's been a long time coming, and we're really excited to see it in the tree. Uh, it provides much higher performance uh, support for or more devices, and it's a much better foundation for doing all kinds of interesting USB work in the future. Among other things, this brings in support for being uh, a USB device. So if you have uh, an embedded device, you know, an ARM board, and it looks like a USB device, we can now sit there and make it look like a disk, make it look like a network device, and provide embedded services, which is a, a feature we've needed for a very long time, and it's very important in embedded. Does this mean that I can yank a USB thumb drive out of my computer without a kernel panic? Well, I'm interesting. So that was actually relatively unrelated. Uh, there, there were reliability problems in FreeBSD in the past uh, relating to doing that, but most of them didn't have to do with USB. However, the FreeBSD Foundation did fund a project over the last six months to improve resilience to that, and in fact, you pretty much can in FreeBSD 8 
put a lot of thumb drives and uh, and not have your machine panic. It pretty much just works now, uh, which is a, a very exciting project. It's interesting because Brooks mentions the X sixty one, and uh, you know, I've always it's always a little embarrassing to show up at a conference with with you know your Mac, even though supposedly that's free BSD, and you don't have your machine that's running head. And so I finally relented and went and got a machine that ran head. And I have to say that I was really dreading putting current onto a laptop because I had done that many years ago and had just thought, well, laptops, you know, it's too hard to get the drivers, it's too hard to get everything to work. And current just worked. The wireless works flawlessly. The USB works correctly. I can plug in drives and get data in and out. And the Ethernet works. I I gave a tutorial uh, at the conference where I used this laptop to demonstrate a bunch of uh, Intel network hardware and everything just works it's really quite impressive it's, I think it's I think the difference between now and, and this was somewhat like four or five years ago um, for laptops and for smaller machines it's it's really much better you know it's always going to lag somewhat because of the inability to get documentation but it's it's really a much better experience and I think eight is definitely going to only improve that it's yeah, also interesting to see the trend at Dev Summits. There was a time when uh, Apple usage rose uh, very much at Dev Summits, and now there's more EPCs and, well, more ThinkPads again. And right. so it's, it's it is interesting. I mean, so you mentioned, mentioned the Mac, but we actually had a Google Summer of Code student last year uh, who spent a lot of time getting FreeBSD up and running on, on Apple's hardware platforms. You know, Apple uses a FreeBSD-derived kernel, uh, and they do the open source thing, yet you know, there's a lot of work because there is a, a huge difference between their OS and our OS. Uh, we had the Summer of Code student, Rui Paolo, who spent a lot of time uh, getting FreeBSD working properly, providing drivers for screen brightness and, and power management. And so, you know, even if you have a Mac today, there's a reasonable chance you can run FreeBSD on it as well, which is, uh, which is nice. And for those of us who have, have Apple hardware, being able to dual boot between the two is, is pretty cool, and that seems to work flawlessly. So, Another thing that's been happening, I think, in recent years... I mean, there, there have been a variety of desktop projects, but probably the, the most well-known one today is, is PCBSD. And I didn't know whether there's been an increase in the number of users who are, are using FreeBSD on the desktop as a result of that, and, and whether as developers you've been getting more bug requests or feature requests that are geared more towards the desktop market and, and features that really benefit that type of use. We get very few bug requests. <laughs> well, no, it's interesting. So we had um, the PCBC folk joined us at our FreeBSD developer time, but they've been doing for a couple of years now. Uh, so it was nice to hear what they're up to, but um, they've been describing to us some of the upcoming features in their uh, new PCBSD release. So they've done a lot of work to integrate uh, services like Jail, and now in PCBSD you can do point-and-click Jail creation and management. Um, this is a, a pretty cool feature because you're a nice user interface and management interface. Uh, We've also been working with them to try and uh, improve support for some desktop hardware. Uh, for example, one of the long-time complaints about FreeBSD is that we've been unable to run uh, with the NVIDIA driver on 64-bit CPUs. And it looks like uh, in the last week even, uh, John Baldwin has taken care of providing the last few features uh, in VM uh, that, AM, uh, that NVIDIA needs, but also companies like AMD now need in order to do high-performance graphics on 64-bit systems. So. It may take you know a few weeks for that to get back to FreeBSD seven and so on, but um, with any luck, both FreeBSD eight zero uh, and FreeBSD seven three, if all goes well, uh, we'll be able to support NVIDIA on the sixty four bit platform. And actually, the uh, an interesting sort of thing around the PCBSD phenomenon is that we had actually expected there would be more you know requests. This doesn't work. We would like this. Can you support that? What about this driver? 
And to be honest, the PCBSD folks have just run with it. They take, you know, the release that we give them and they put this stuff around it and they make it work and you get a disc and I, I install every PCBSD that comes out just to see what it looks like. And you plug in the disc and it just it just works, which is really amazing. And it's it's been a really good, I think, relationship. Um, they're well supported by IX Systems, who is really pushing PCBSD, interestingly enough, uh, which I think is also really good for for them and really good for us. Yeah, we're we're working to bring uh, some some more of the PCBSD people into the sort of the inner part of the FreeBSD community, so they have a better visibility into the release process and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, Chris has indicated to me that they're going to try and come closer to doing day and date releases. That's that's their eventual goal, so that they can have a new PCBSD with the FreeBSD release, which would be really exciting. And another quite neat project. I mean, it's always interesting talking about the sort of the growing ecosystem that is the FreeBSD community. Uh, we've been very excited to see the work that the PFSense folks did. They produce a uh, a sort of embedded FreeBSD antenna to run firewalls. They provide a nice web management interface. Uh, we had them at our developer summit also presenting to us on their latest work and their forthcoming release. Uh, and they're really they're doing some very neat things. They're integrating some of our more exciting uh, 8.x networking features, uh, like you know virtual access point support, uh, directly into their product. So VAP support is is pretty nice. What it allows you to do is use one radio, one one wireless device, and host many different SSIDs, many different networks, and different properties. Uh, and they're just going ahead and, and integrating that support. So with any luck, future PFSense releases, we'll be able to create guest networks as well as private networks, give them different performance characteristics, different security properties different address ranges, all these things. And they do it all with a very nice you know, bundled web interface on top. Uh, we were also quite interested to hear from them about the changes they've made to FreeBSD. You know, they've incorporated some of the patches that have been outstanding in the FreeBSD community for a while, uh, such as NAT-T support. Uh, and one of the benefits to them picking things up is that they give us a lot of feedback on the work, which means that as we bring it back into our base tree, you know, it's had a chance to go through through a, you know, more deployment and more testing, which is, uh, which is quite neat. It's also really interesting to invite these people to our developer summits because they do bring feedback from a different group of users than the ones we see popping up in our PR system. So, and their wish lists are also very interesting. We're using FreeBSD, and, but it would be nice if, etc., etc. I think the other area that we, we should at least touch on a little bit is file systems because you do have a room full of somewhat heavily networked people. Which is, you can't watch us all nod, but we're all nodding. And I think one of the things that... Um, more people in the project are starting to look at are newer file systems. It's pretty obvious with the size of disks at this point that you know we have to have a better file system strategy. ZFS is a, a key part of that, I think. But there's beginning to be a, a good deal of performance and scalability work for very large uh, disks. And then again, uh, back on the embedded side, very small disks getting down to the, to the flash, as uh, Robert mentioned. But I think the file system... You know, when you when you come back in a year and we talk about this again, you'll you'll hear some stuff about file systems. It must be difficult to design something that will scale in both directions, pretty much to the extreme. That's one of the key challenges. Right. I think there are tensions there, uh, but at the same time, it's kind of interesting. You know, um, five years ago, eight years ago, the concept of FreeBSD embedded was didn't really make any sense because embedded devices were small computing devices without virtual memory, and virtual memory is always been key to the Unix design. Um, and now embedded means a whole range of different things it didn't used to mean. ARM processors and embedded devices have TLBs. Um, they have virtual memory. Uh, 
one of uh, one of the consumers who was at the developer summit was saying for their product, you know, we can't actually buy flash from our vendors that is less than one gigabyte in size anymore for the type of product we build. So why not install the FreeBSD distribution on it? And in fact, in their case, they even install the compiler um, because they have the space and, it, and, and it's easier not to customize than to customize. And, you know, we try to, we do try to support the communities that need to customize and narrow down, but I think embedded computing has grown up to meet FreeBSD. You know, 30 years ago, FreeBSD ran on, or BSD systems ran on mainframes on supercomputers. And now we run on the smallest computing devices that exist. And that's very exciting for us. Also, embedded has uh, changed a bit as well. We've got embedded systems which are larger than houses. Well, not quite that large, but larger than humans operating them. So embedded is more meaning an operating system sitting inside and doing something meaningful rather than something tiny running something real-time. Right. And we've tried, to, we've tried to cater to that audience, the people who want to specialize the operating system in various ways. One of the things that's happened over the course of sort of FreeBSD 6 to FreeBSD 8 is that we've tried to improve the extensibility of our platform. We've tried to improve the guarantees we provide to people who do extend the platform about whether minor releases will break their extensions. You know, we try to document our kernel interfaces and, and maintain them over time a bit better, add frameworks to make it easier to extend the system, you know, to plug in firewalls, plug-in security modules. And that's one of the reasons why shipping Mac out of the box in 8 would be great. Uh, we have a number of companies who produce products who have very custom security policies that they use in their products. And the less they have to modify our system to do their custom services, the better. So we really want to try and serve that community as, as best as we can. Another thing that has floated to the top of my head, I think, when reading about the most recent releases, is a new transport protocol is finally in there, ready to go? SCTP. Yeah. So SCTP has actually been in since 7.0. I believe. And uh, yes, SCTP is uh, in there. It's being used by people in the networking community. We actually just um, got a new committer who's also going to work on that. Uh, the nice thing about SCTP is that it's also heavily IPv6 uh, centric. It's actually built for both. And that's helped to exercise the IPv6 code. It's helped to push our IPv6 code to, to modernize, which I think is a really good thing. But yeah, CGP's been in there since 7.0. Right, it makes sense. continue to improve, and th those people actually work on the FreeBSD project. They are committers to the project, which is right. great. Essentially, we're actually the reference implementation of SCTP, and um, this, so it's quite a need to be on the cutting edge of everything coming in for this new protocol. For people who aren't familiar with SCTP, uh, I, mean, it, I think it would be impolite to refer to it as a kitchen sink of protocols, but in some senses it is. It has... Um, uh, it has support for multiple endpoints, so you can use many different IP addresses on the same host, uh, failover, redundancy. Um, it's a very tunable protocol. Uh, it's possible to tune it from behaving as reliably and stream-oriented as TCP, but also do reliable datagrams. Yes, yeah, sequence uh, packet. Right, exactly. So I mean, it's, uh, a lot of consumers look at it and say, well, you know, UDP and TCP, are they're, they're good protocols, but they've never precisely met our needs. Well, with SCTP, we can turn the dial a little bit and get something that is, is that much better. You know, we don't want to... Uh, TCP will, will wait forever to retransmit a piece of data, but wouldn't it be better if you were doing a video conference? You know, maybe after 10 minutes you no longer care about the frame from 10 minutes ago and you don't want to receive it. Uh, so that kind of, of tunability has made SCTP a really compelling feature for a lot of consumers. I mean, we see telecom companies who use SCTP for VoIP uh, backends and teleconferences and phone calls. Um, it's very much targeted at that kind of provider. Um, but, you know, at the same time, if you use FreeBSD in your embedded product, now you get SCTP support out of the box. So if your applications know how to use it, and that's not much of a change for basic SCTP use, you can just start using it. And you know, as you mentioned, uh, IPv6, uh, there's more and more noise recently that 
the, the, uh, the sky is falling that we heard about years ago that we were going to run out of IPv4, but then it didn't seem to be coming. It, it seems like that's coming back again where people are starting to say, gee, maybe we really have to look at IPv6. And one of the recent conferences you were at was Asia BSDCon. And I believe that there's a lot more IPv6 use over there. And, and do you think you're getting enough people who are hammering away at the IPv6 code to, to consider it you know, mature enough? Well, not to start to bump into its limits, and more and more people are starting to look at the IPv6 code, but ideally we do need more people to look at it. Right. I mean, I think one of the, one of the interesting things that is happening over the course of eight, uh, as part of things like the multi-jail support and so on, has been, um, you know, trying to converge the slightly divergent pieces of IPv4 and IPv6, uh, move them together. Uh, one of the things we're finally being able to do in eight uh, is really say there is no giant lock anywhere in the kernel, and there were a couple of lower level pieces of IPv6 which were the stragglers there, and they now seem to be seem to be coming together. And I think that reflects the fact that we've kind of taken ownership of the code. Uh, when the Kame team produced IPv6 as a reference implementation, um, you know, it was done for a number of operating systems. Uh, it was something that we considered to be an external contribution to the project, and we've gradually been able to take ownership of that code, um, make it more consistent with what we have, enhance it even. Uh, and I think that that has benefits for everyone who uses IPv6 on the platform. You know, it's, it's hard to imagine. I mean, you know, when Kame brought us IPv6 and we began supporting it out of the box many years ago now, I mean, it was a very exciting feature. Uh, and now people are really looking to use it. I mean, certainly, you know, uh, I don't have IPv6 at home yet in my home in the UK. I can certainly imagine it coming, but certainly I have it in my office. Uh, and the fact that FreeBSD just uses it out of the box is very exciting. I know we see vendors who use... IPv6 and FreeBSD-derived systems starting to use a lot of that too. For example, uh, Apple's Mac OS X uses IPv6 to configure a number of devices, and you know that's the, the FreeBSD-derived code. Also, with IPv6, one reason to go for IPv6 is the wider address space, but more importantly, in IPv6, multicast has been, uh, has been well, made to work. In IPv4, multicast was bolted on as an afterthought. Um, IGMP was not really thought out at all, but in IPv6, we've got proper multicast support, and Bruce, I think, has been working very hard on uh, MLD and selective source multicast, which is very exciting to people doing uh, IPTV and, and other broadcast services, and quotes broadcasts now meaning multicast. The other thing with IPv6, I think, and what Robert touched on with it coming over from Kami and eventually becoming part of the operating system proper, is that it's now become basically a first-class citizen in the network stack. It's, we were at the Dev Summit, there was a very strong uh, set of statements around the fact that, you know, if you do this to, if you do something to IPv4, you must do it to IPv6, and you must, you know, at least tell us what it was so that we can make sure that, the, that both code bases move forward at the same time that everything, you know, again, just works out of the box. And again, IPv6... The network is still mostly deployed in places outside of North America. So while you can get tunnel service in the United States, in Japan you can get native service, in much of Asia you can get native service, in parts of Europe you can get native IPv6 service. Uh, the Department of Defense in the United States claims that they are going to move everything to IPv6. We'll see if they actually do it. They but now require IPv6 support for yes, yeah, so we'll require and re require and actually do turn down. Yes, are any of you able to get IPv6 at home through your home consumer connections? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so Satosan shakes his head. Really? 
Well, yeah, as I said, I have it in my office, right? The University right. of Cambridge yeah. uh, deploys IPv6 internally, uh, and there are advantages to using IPv6 where you can. Uh, I run cvsup.uk.freebsd.org at the University of Cambridge, and we offer IPv6 service, and we actually have quite a few users, interestingly. I sort of, we received a lot of requests when we first set it up. They said, this is great. I see it has an IPv6 address, but I can't help but notice that you're not running the cvsup service on it. So and after a little bit of cogitation, I figured out how to turn that on, and, uh, and, and, it, and it gets a lot of use. It's always interesting to uh, speak to people who run uh, large uh, FreeBSD setups, which happen to be connected to the IPv6 internet, they are seeing more and more use of it, basically by accident, because more and more people are having IPv6 and they don't notice that it's actually been right, it's used. Cool. You Google, can get spam. Google, Google is doing. Oh yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. spam over IPv6. Yes. Quite awful. Well, that's the reason to deploy it. Google has recently made uh, their uh, service available over IPv6. There was some noise noise about that on Slashdot and, and other questionable websites, but uh, so yeah more and more IPv6 is out there and more and more IPv6 actually being used. Right. And it's quite important that we're, we're ready for that. And in fact, as I said, you know, we've been able to support IPv6 out of the box for, for many years now, uh, and we will continue to do so. All right, well, anything else you can think about? Uh, I know that we've, we've covered 7 and 8, and there, I heard a rumor that there was some 9 stuff going on, but maybe that's uh, too far away to, to get into at this point. But are, are the roadmaps that you discuss in these kinds of conferences, if people were curious about what might be appearing in 9 available to the public, or is it still just sort of around your head, you know, bouncing around inside your heads at this point? I 9, I don't think you would find much on 8, mm-hmm. you'll find things I on. think we want to focus on getting 8 out the door and not get too far ahead of us, because otherwise, so yes, there's this 8 thing we should probably get finished. Right, I mean, it's interesting, I mean, you know, it's... You have your head down and you're working on the code and, and you kind of lose sight of the world around you as you're doing this. And you look up once in a while and you discover people have deployed all your software. Um, and it's interesting talking to people who are already using 8 and things and their reports are, are very positive that it's an extremely stable release. Um, and you know, here I was sort of sitting there, you know, hacking on the code. I've got to get these things fixed before we get the release out the door. And that's always the way it is as you hit the crunch. Um, but I think we're, we're very optimistic and a lot of our users... Uh, have expressed a lot of excitement about all the all the amazing features we have coming. Uh, we are also getting better at meeting our release deadlines. Our previous interview was uh, at Meet BSD in November, and we just had seven one out the door. Now we're May, and we've got seven two out the door. So we are starting to meet these six monthly release windows, and the twenty four monthly or whatever this dot uh, zero cycles are also starting to vaguely work out. So. We are we're hopeful we'll get it out the door on time for it to more. And we'll just have to see what on time means. Well, yes. Christmas, right? <laughs> it will be a very nice Christmas present. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Well, thank you. I'm sure you're all excited to get back to the conference and see some of the other presentations. So thank you for your time. And I look forward to the next conference where we can talk again. Thanks. Thank, thank you. If you'd like to leave comments or reach the show archives, you can find them at bsdtalk.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to send me an email, you can reach me at bitgeist at yahoo.com. That's B-I-T. G-E-I-S-T at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. This has been BSD Talk number 173.